to my girlfriend. I was like, I need to do this. And she was like, you can't just turn around and say you want to be Chewbacca. And I was like, I can do this. Like, I really can do this. Trust me. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Peter and Cecil needed a week off after last week's drubbing that they got from social justice warriors about us standing up for what's right. So this week I'm going to talk to my friend and filmmaker David Paul Irons. Now you guys might not be really familiar with him, but you should be. Before that, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. So here I've got David Irons. Now, he is one of the most unique visionary filmmakers I've run across in a long time. And he he loves practicals, he hates nostalgia exploitation. And yet, we'll talk a little bit later about why you might not have heard of him so much. He actually is probably one of, he's probably the future if you can, if he can just get past the bullshit that it takes to get there. Hello, David. Hello. That was a very nice intro. I was uh, kind of taken back there for a moment. Before we get into this, if people do know you, you've done music videos, you've done short films, you've done a feature film, which, like I said, we'll talk about why that's such kind of a cluster later, even though the film is not, but why getting to see it might be. What would you want this audience to seek out of yours? I think just go and check out my website. Go and check out my website. Everything's on there. I think the things that stand out the most, I think everything stands out to a degree when you know how it's been done, if that makes sense. Because I've never really had, I mean, like the highest budget I've ever had for any is 2000. And, that and, was and, and you made a freaking feature film out of that. That I made a feature film out of that. Yeah, trust me. If I didn't pay for it out of the pocket, I paid for it in other ways. I really did. For the audience, I want to say the feature film is, I saw it as cassette, but it's getting released if it does as Identity Crisis, it's a period piece set in 1986 with an all-original soundtrack, all in-camera lighting, and it's drenched in lighting. David's one of those filmmakers that's not afraid of color, which is something I'm just getting sick of. And it has fantastic acting. I'm not so sure I agree with one of the reviews that called it a female drive. I'm not 100% on board (laughs) with that. But, But the fact that you made a period piece that is completely original with an all-original soundtrack that has original costumes and is completely with in-camera color, and there's only one CG shot, which we'll talk about in a minute, for $2,000. That's astounding. Well, it was hard work. It was extremely hard work. That was the, the big thing. And uh, what you say about it was, uh, uh, you know, like a nostalgia piece, like an 80s piece. I, I did the first 
kind of narrative film that I put together was called Casting Call. And uh, it's, it's 20 minutes long, uh, and like an old Twilight Zone episode. It's got a little twist ending on there. And it, I shot that in black and white. If you listen to the soundtrack and kind of get a feel for the costume design and everything, it's kind of very late 60s, early 70s, without saying it's that, if you know what I mean. It's, you kind of look at it and accept it as, as what it is. And I kind of learned a lot from making that film and then applied it to making cassettes. I was like, well, if I can make something in black and white and it feels like a, 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 a period piece, surely I can do it for a feature as well and just set decorate things appropriately and there was a point where i mean like with 2000 you can't control everything there was there was in it it was like well if we film something and someone parks the opposite side of the road where we're filming okay then it's blown uh, we try and keep our focus if we can and cut around things there's a couple of things on there like in my mind now thinking about that film that's on the money that if, if i let that shot linger anymore something from like 2012 2013 would have drove past or moved past the shot so it was very much done on the fly done on the fly with the intention being something and luckily at the end when we edited the thing it became that thing that we wanted it to be and you you are a big proponent of practical effects i'll talk about seven winters alone in a minute i know i keep saying that Mm. but i see the audience might not know your work I do. But in cassette, this being said in 1986, it's full of practicals and like you, you've got a, a vintage shop, which over here would be a resale store that has comic books, comic book pages lining the walls and, you know, all this old clothing and whatnot. But you have one CG shot in the film. Explain why you had to CG someone's t-shirt. <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, we could, I could take, like, when I did the, the rough cut of the film, uh, like the assembly cut came in and it was, uh, I think it was about, the first cut was two hours and then the second cut after that, it was like one, four, five. I figured out that if I could cut out an entire chunk from the film and it still play and get to the point where it needed to be, but the character's clothes would change. But it wasn't a major change. It was like someone had a t-shirt with a logo on it. If I could get rid of the logo, then you could just cut these two scenes together seamlessly. And literally that was, that was the only CG that we used just to remove as it should be used, as it should be used. Unless you're making something like Jurassic Park where you need dinosaurs, things that don't really exist. You just need it to eliminate things, take things out, make things work. But, and I, it, it just doesn't make sense where you need such a huge heavy reliance on CG. You, you, you don't. If you're working on a, I think, I think the art of what a low budget film is has kind of gone. And I think people immediately try and emulate big budget stuff with no money and it just ends up looking cheap. Yeah, that that was the only time I've used it. That was the only time I've used CG and that was just for removing the, a logo from a t-shirt. With cassette being, as, as I said, the lighting, it's got very rich oranges. I, I don't mean in a Michael Bay style, the way he uses, you know, the, the teal and blue and all that, you know. It has very rich oranges and reds and yellows. How did you achieve that all in color for no money when you have all of these huge budget films that have to do either their color saturation or desaturation in post with CG? How did you do it with practicals? all in camera i, I mean and because you had no money <laughs> no we definitely had no money we could have, like there's one thing you can always say about my career up to this point i've definitely had no money that's that's a fact the whole thing was it was it was you have two things you either have time or you have money and we didn't have a lot of time but the time we did have it was used properly it was used properly and it was used properly from the ground up 
Right, this is how it worked with cassette. I had four grand. Two grand of that got spent on equipment. I bought a camera for a thousand, and then with the rest of the money, instead of just, I could, I could have bought two lenses with with the other thousand, but I went out and bought lots of old eighties lenses, old prime lenses, uh, Canon lenses, uh, Prince Flex lenses, and just adapted them so they worked. Oh, and I think I, I shot it primarily on a, a Canon 7D. So we just, I just converted all these old lenses, and the thing about these old lenses, they actually let. It, it was like a bargain in a way. It was like the best thing I could have done in this situation because those old lenses let more light in than a new Canon lens. Like you could go and spend $500 on a new Canon lens and it lets in less light. It's like you can actually see how restricted it is because you, you spend 500 on a Canon lens. It's like, oh yeah, you've got the $500 Canon lens, but you really need like the $2,000 Canon lens because that lets in even more light. Or you go the opposite way and just go and buy a load of like old secondhand 70s and 80s lenses, convert them. And instantly they just let in more light than any cannon. So I, I had that on my side. And whereas I had time on my side as well to do things, I was literally going to locations like this, in the, in the film. The film's, it's a very simple film. I, I look at it this way. The whole, uh, I, I kind of made something within my means. Like I love the horror genre and I want to make a good horror film. But I thought with 2000, I'm not going to make the kind of good horror film I want to make. So I made cassette and cassette is a very simple story about a girl in the eighties who wants to be her idol. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. And with that, it just got like having a story that simple and not having to think about, oh, we need like these effects here, this, there, that, there. It just gave me time. And with that time, I would literally pick locations and go there and say, okay, right, the sun's, the sun's setting to the west. Right. What's the best time of day to use this location and get the best from the sun? So say like, what's the best time? Are we going to use it at magic hour here? Are we going to use it at dawn? Are we going to use it in the middle of the day? And so you'd have all these locations timed with where the sun was going to be. And I literally filmed a huge chunk of it outside like that. Because if you look at it, a lot of it outside is magic hour. A lot of it is actually that warm orange that you're talking about. It's not like added afterwards. It's not a, a, a post-production effect. Everything was just there in camera. Like I took the time to, to make sure it was there. And I just used gels. I used, I used gels if it was, uh, if it was inside for the lighting so that it was actually real lighting there. It was a real lighting cell. And outside, I would just use, uh, I was, I was kind of lucky when I was looking for the old lenses. I managed to find a box of filters as well. And so I had the filters for outside just to, just to enhance things slightly. So you might have a filter with like a slight orange fade on it and you think, okay, yeah, I can use this today. The sun's not as high or as you'd want it to be. And you just kind of, uh, manipulate things like that. Manipulate things there and then. But that helped as well because when you're doing this on a low budget, there's a lot of trust you have to have between people. And everyone I was working with on this film, I've never worked for, like the actors and so on and so forth. Being an actor and working on things at this level, there's, there's just so much crap. There's so much crap. People, I, I see things that people do and it's just like, yeah, this, I've done something. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't look, the big thing is it doesn't look good. It doesn't look like a film. And having things there, like using the gels, using the filters, having lenses that actually are doing something like enhancing the image while you're on set you could film something show it to someone and say like this is what this is going to look like and instantly it would be like a breath of fresh air like oh this looks good yeah like and, and it just helps build a bit of momentum a bit of energy with everyone doing something because it was it was hard work so it was just an added thing that would help push it all forward like yeah this is looking really good like let's let's do this and it just can uh, just create that kind of enthusiasm why do you think so many films go for that we're afraid the way i word it is they are afraid of color 
So many modern filmmakers are afraid of using color, and yet they shoot their movies in quotes normal, and then just leech all the color out in post, which to me defeats the freaking purpose. I, I think it's a, I think it's just a thing that that people do in the fact that they look around and see what other people are doing, and then use that as the measuring stick to what they're doing. So a lot of people just use it, it and it's kind of lazy. There's a lot of lazy filmmaking, even though you've got. The digital stuff where you can just go and you can, anyone can shoot something, but then anyone can shoot something and not put effort into it. And it's easy not to put effort into anything. What have you got to do? You haven't got to do anything. You've just got the bare minimum. Okay. I've shot something. There you go. We'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. One of the actors, one of my first films, casting call, the first narrative film I made, he did a, a vampire film. And he was going, oh, yeah, we're shooting this thing, and some of it looks really good. But the worrying thing was uh, we started halfway through this scene. Rather than go back and film it another day, it started raining. And they turned around and said, we'll fix it in post. And he said his hair was wet, and, and the outfit was just like the collar was like drooping with the rain. And, and it just didn't make sense. It uh, like I, I don't know what how, like, I, I'd love to know how you'd fix that in post. I would love to know how you'd fix that in post. There was one scene in Cassette. At one point, one girl is coming at another girl with a broken bottle. The girl with the broken bottle slips, and the bottle slices through her hand, and you see the chunk stick sticking out. I thought that was CG, until you told me that was practical, when she falls on the bottle and it jams Oh, yeah, hand. that was, yeah, no, that was completely practical. That was completely practical, and that was just, it was actually the cheapest effect in the world. It really was. It was, uh, the place, it was, that's, that whole, uh, scene was filmed in, it was an, it was an ex, an old prison that was turned into a nightclub. And I just got lucky. I went there one day and walked in, spoke to the guy and uh, was like, can we, I'd like to use this place. And this, no, this never happens. This never happens. And it was really just as simple and truthful as this. And he turned around and said, Oh, okay. So what kind of time of day are you thinking about doing it? It was like, Oh, a couple of weeks time. And he goes, Oh, that's, that's kind of fortunate. Then you can, yeah, yeah, you can use it on my holiday then. There's the spare key. Just drop it through the letterbox afterwards. And everyone sat there like, did that just happen? Did that just happen? And he had, because it was a nightclub and he had, he had bottles there. He had everything else. We just literally got, uh, he had, we had like a, 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 a box, a bag full of broken bottles and just found one that was smashed from the bottom and you could fit the actress's fingers around the broken glass. And then we just glued a couple of bits of like random shards on the top. So it just looked like it went through. And then just filmed it properly. Then just filmed it. So she stood there. She turned around. You see the bottle. She falls to the floor and slam. And then it, it cuts to it. And it's all about a reaction. It's, it wasn't about the having. It's about acting. Do you remember that thing in films? It's about acting. Before we move on to the rest of your career, we need to talk about why people are most likely not going to see this movie. Now, it was called Cassette when you made it and when I saw it. It's now been retitled Identity Crisis, which I think is a worse title, but... To be fair, it's more accurate to what actually happens in the movie. So it's not technically a bad title because there is an identity crisis as the main driving plot. Why, as much as you can speak, why is this movie essentially lost in litigation hell? Um, it, It's a very odd situation. Basically, when we originally filmed Cassette, the, the initial shoot was 2012, I'm going to say. 
There was like a huge lump of footage, uh, everything to go through, try, time to sort the soundtrack out. Like I, I do this stuff, I do this stuff because I love it, and I do this stuff around having a normal life and having to work and uh, and all those boring things. Uh, so it, it went over like the space of a year. In, in, uh, over the time I was editing, because that I was making other, and, it, and I think it was 2015 that it was it was finally finished. Everything was done. It was the best it was going to be, and then we took it out. And it, I had few offers for distribution on it and then i basically went as you would as anyone would if, if they got any kind of clue with the best offer and the best offer was um i get uh new york screening i get this and there was just like there, there was a look to yeah we want to help you as a filmmaker and that's really why i made the film the, i made the film to show i could make a film it, this was like my my business card my showreel saying look i can do this for nothing you give me some money let, let's do something good let's do something big let's you know I, I can make even with a small budget i can make something look big and so it went out and this guy kind of got that and uh we started rolling forward on things and uh yeah and he was just offering things that kind of made sense like new york screening uh a, a good distribution deal and i showed it around to people in the know about these things and uh they said yeah this is you should do this this is this isn't this isn't bad you should do this because this isn't bad so i did and then it was like, uh, that, that's when things started to change as they do with these things. And the, the title came up and I was immediately, like, let's be serious, Josh. It does sound like something with Sharon, T- uh, Shannon T- Tweed from like 1983, Identity Crisis with Eric Roberts. It, it sounds like that kind of thing from that time period. And I, it, and I think that was why they were thinking. You don't know this. It kind of unfolds slowly. As you get to know someone, as you're working with someone, it's like, okay, we're going to go that road about it. And then I saw the the, the concept poster. Oh which my makes it god, that <laughs> one of the concept posters. I actually thought this was like a rejected concept poster for one of the Cube movies. They were trying to sell this eight 1986 period piece, which I just want to be clear has no sci-fi or anything in it as a sci-fi movie. With like it had Kelby Keenan, the star who plays two characters in the movie, it had her face like split over this this gleaming the cubes if you've ever seen the british poster for gleaming the cube over this like rubik's cube type poster while she's screaming with all of these blue metal backgrounds and i'm like there's absolutely nothing like that in this film david <laughs> I know that, you know that, but I think that was the point. No one else was supposed to know that because it was going to get marketed. As time went on, I saw like a catalog for their, their, their film slate and what they were planning to do with them. And it was actually listed under, uh, as a thriller. And that's when it was just like, okay, alarm bells are really ringing now. It's just like, why? I, th- I think they literally just purchased the film to repackage it as something else. As part of a deal. I like that. That's anything that kind of makes sense to me because there's nothing in there. there there's no sci-fi and it's definitely, most definitely not a thriller. It's really not. But they, they did kind of work with me for a while and it was like, okay, let's change some things with this. And they said about the title and I said, and they were literally just going to cut on my, on my version of the film where cassette came up. And it was kind of an organic thing in the film where the title cassette came up and, uh, you saw the lead actress. She was driving in a car and I had a tape deck and we pushed the cassette in the tape deck, a little chrome flap had come down and he said cassette 
and then when you uh, when you put the tape in there, it mirrored, so it had two cassettes, and the whole thing's about someone becoming someone else. And I was like, that kind of fits into the theme of them, like the duality and everything. That looks really nice. Okay, we're changing the title. So I went back and refilmed the whole Identity Crisis title for them. Because originally they were just going to cut it, and then just cut to like a, a, a digital of Identity Crisis. And I was like, just please, please don't do that. Just let, if you were going to change them, let me at least make something that looks good like I said I was in shoes with a cassette deck in the car and I cut that and then refilled like went to a, just an old factory spray painted uh, the wall with like identity crisis on it and so and then cut it so she looks like she's driving the car around she drives up to this old wall hits the brakes and their identity crisis is illuminated she turns off the lights we fade to black and the film continues so they were fine about that but then everything beyond that was just uh, it, it just got I think they kind of got what they wanted and then yeah no future projects that kind of oh yeah we want to do this and that that disappeared with the new york screening with everything and so it's just kind of limbo the film does exist via bootleg you can find it on certain torrent sites <coughs> but <laughs> but uh yeah the, it, getting a legal copy is very difficult right now so l- let's move from that since you can't talk too much about that to no, I brought no. up earlier Seven Winters Alone because this will also go into another subject. Seven Winters Alone is both a music video and a short film. And I don't mean the short film is a music video or vice versa. They're two separate things, but they use a lot of the same footage and, you know, the same style and all that. I have to admit this was the first time I ever saw a post-apocalyptic future where somebody uses a Ouija board to summon a ghost into it. I have to admit that was unique. Well, yeah, the, um, it's, uh, it was a very funny way that kind of came around. Everything's as they do, I suppose, kind of one thing's led to another, uh, in, in very different ways. It was, it was, uh, I put up a trailer for cassette in 2013. A guy contacted me and, uh, he was like, Oh, I saw the trailer and I'm, I'm looking for a music video and, uh, we should meet up. And he was like, Yeah, cool, definitely. And, uh, we both went to meet in London. I didn't live in London. I lived outside of London and we met in London, started talking and realized we probably lived about 10 minutes away from one another because it's just a dumb thing. It's like, Oh yeah, we're you live London because everyone you, you think England you think London and uh we we went there and we spoke and uh, we became good friends. Uh, he his band he had a band called Seize the Day and all of his music is very much nineties kind of style music and uh, like he had got lots of reviews saying oh yeah this is it, it feels authentic nineties and he played me some of his stuff and immediately I was like yeah sounds really nineties and with then I said what do you, where do you want to go with this video what do you want the video to be uh, we just started talking about things that are uh, you know nineties. What do you, what, what kind of films do you associate with the 90s? And straight away, it was James Cameron, T2, and Richard Stanley. He loved that stuff. I loved that stuff. And he was like, okay, let's just make this short film, uh, music video. And we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll have the reds of Richard Stanley. We'll have the, the blues of James Cameron. Put this thing together, uh, make it a, a little tribute to, you know, that kind of a period in time and, and run with it. It was, it was a lot of fun making that. Again, like if you, if you watch it, the music video was five minutes long. And as we were shooting it, I was saying we can probably get enough stuff from this to make a short film from. And then, and it kind of just, from saying it and doing it, it just kind of adapted into that. Oh yeah, we've got the music video version and the short film version. Again, I mean like that, filming that was ridiculous. I, I made all the, uh, the costume and everything in that, like this futuristic costume. And at the end, it was like, okay, what should we do to end it? And I was like, well, you know, there's a girl. The basic idea was, 
where it was set in a post-apocalyptic future with like a single character on their own, uh, it was just like, what would you do? If you were that desperate on your own, what would you do? And then I'm very much into the occult and supernatural things. And James, uh, the lead singer of the band, he, he was as well. And it just kind of naturally came up just like, oh yeah, I've, I've never seen that. And it was just like, no, I've never seen that before. We just kind of run with it and had this kind of post. I've never seen a post-apocalyptic supernatural film. I can't really, I mean, like you've got like rats, night of terror, which is kind of horror post-apocalyptic, but never really supernatural. And it's like, yeah, this is something different. And so we carried on making this thing and uh, we said, how are we going to wrap it up? What's, what's the end going to be? And uh, it was like, let's have a car chase. And at the end, the car will explode. And the car that we set fire to at the end of it was actually my car at the time. It was just like, we just got so into this thing. It's just like, let's just do it. Let's just do it, right? We're going to do it. We're going to take the car. We're going to set fire to the car and the car burns. And it was just all practical, just all practical effects and knowing how to use and manipulate film. Because there's stuff in there where it looks like, oh yeah, the, the tires magically burst a light stuff and it was just a lot of like rever- reversing footage and just editing things uh properly actual so filmmaking just, actual filmmaking you know those old filmmaking techniques yeah we, we actually used you know that thing while making a film who'd have uh who'd have thought eh? and, and there's something in seven winters alone that'll lead into another topic which you know we talked a little earlier about how you used cgi literally so sparringly you used it when you literally had to mm-hmm. when when the in Seven Winters Alone, she makes a laser cage to catch the the ghost in. And, you know, mm. it's laser bars and whatnot in a circle. That You did all of that with practicals. And then when the Hulu series Dimension 404 came out, there was an episode where they trapped a guy in a laser cage, an obvious CG laser cage. And I remember <laughs> I showed that to you, and first of all, you were pissed off. And you actually said, I think I have to talk to a lawyer about this. But, <laughs> but, but you were like, they had, you know, a thousand times more money than I did and they did it CG and I did it practical. Does that kind of thing really make you weep for where we're going as filmmakers where theirs looked worse, probably cost way more and most likely they had no idea how you would have done a practical like you did in Seven Winners Alone. I think it's kind of scary sometimes, just like the reliance on CG. It, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. It really doesn't. There's just certain things that, you know, you can... There's certain things that can be done so much easier than just spending all that time on on, on on something the CG and crappy CG. Something that looks terrible, and I just don't understand that. And I, I see things all the time. That laser, that laser cage in, in that Dimension 404 episode looked awful, didn't it? Yeah, it didn't look the best. Let's just, let's just be polite and say it didn't look the best. But it's, it's just having, I mean, you're not really, a lot of filmmakers now, and it's kind of like acting. I feel this way about acting as well. They just emulate the things that are around them. So right now, like everyone uses CGI, everyone uses color correction. Okay. Yeah. So that's what I have to do to make a film. They look at things that's immediately in front of them. This is how I'll make a film. This is what a film is. And then they make this thing. They look at it and think, yeah, I've made a film. This is what this should be. And in a way, it is because everything else around them looks like that. And everything else is the same as that. And they've just emulated that. And they've got something that fits in very nicely next to those things. But it doesn't necessarily say it's a good thing. It is really not. And I think it's the kind of same way with acting. Like Working with actors is very... <sighs> right. You've seen Rogue One, yeah? Yes, I have. Right. What do you think of the lead actress in it? Stiff would be kind. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's very kind. But lots of people, 
let's be serious. You were talking about this a little while ago on a radio drone about models, models pretending to be actors. And you get these stiff, lifeless drones turning up to do things. They, uh, there's no emotion there, but people cast them in things. And then other people look at that and think, I know what that is. That's acting. That's what I need to do to be an actor. There's certain people who I've worked with and we start doing things and they're like, oh, I, I don't normally get pushed like this to, you know, like actually act. Emote. I don't normally get, yeah, emote. Are you giving me direction? You're directing me. And it's very, it's acting's kind of become that. And that's why there's not that many interesting people who even attempt, I think, to become actors now. Because they look at it and there's all these, you know, pretty, pretty sparkly model faces, Zac Efron's and, and all this business. And it's just like, oh, yeah, that's what you need to be to be an actor. And, and it's not. People just look at things that are immediately there. Oh, I understand what this is. I have to be this. I need to fit in with this. So I need to be this. There you go. I'm an actor. And I find it all the time. And it's, it's, and it sounds like I'm being a bitch. It sounds like I'm being a real bitch, but I think there's a lot of lazy directors and lazy actors as well. And some of them, it's not even their fault because they just do it and they think, oh, this is, this is what it is. I'm doing it now. And I think there's just lots of bad form. There is lots of bad form that's kind of turned up in, in just filmmaking and acting in general, really. You brought up Rogue One a minute ago. You mm-hmm. have a unique connection to the modern <laughs> Star Wars films, don't you? Um, yeah, you could say that. You could say I've got a unique connection to the new Star Wars films. Yeah. Like you say, lots of people have no idea who I am. Thank you very much if you're still listening to this now. I, I really appreciate that. But I'm a very tall man. I'm six foot nine. I, I, I always try and I try and do as many things in film as I possibly can. I really do. It's just like, it's all about the next step and trying to get somewhere. Like, I need to get out there and do this stuff. It was round about the time. What was the first? Force Awakens. It was when The Force Awakens was being cast and I heard about it. And, um, and then they put a casting call out in this country saying, we're looking for a Chewbacca. And immediately I was like, I, I turned around to my girlfriend. I was like, I need to do this. And she was like, you can't just turn around and say you want to be Chewbacca. And I was like, I can do this. Like, I really can do this. Trust me. Just get me in there and, and I, and I, and I can do this. And, uh, and she was like, oh, you can't just turn around one morning and say, okay, I'm going to be an actor. And I'd done some, like in seven winters, I was in like the, 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 the ghost creatures suit and there's some other bits and pieces that I'd done. I was like, no, I really can. I really can. And I'd, I'd been cast. It was like a friend of a friend and they did a, a, an advert for ASOS and, um, they needed a mummy. And I did the whole like prosthetics as the mummy and everything else. Uh, and I had this. There was bits and pieces that I had. And like this was like 11 o'clock at night. This thing had come up on social media about they were looking for a Chewbacca. And so over that night, I cut together a showreel, an acting showreel, which consisted of about two or three different things just like shoved together. And then I did my own headshots in the morning. And so I put this kind of together and did a covering letter. And I said to her, my, my girlfriend's an actress. And I said, can you, and said, look, I can send this to my agent. Like, if you really think you can do this, like that, send it to the agent, send it to the agent. Let's go for it. And, and she sent it out. Like, like I say, like this started at like 11 o'clock one night. And then by 12 o'clock the next day, I had two offers from two agents. One of the agents was Warwick Davis. He's got an acting agency for like tall and short actors. And it turned out that her agent had gone to lunch. Like the biggest casting agent in the UK is Nina Gold. And her agent had gone to lunch with Nina Gold and said, oh, uh, yeah, I've got someone who's interested in doing the new Star Wars film, Chewbacca and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, I'm casting now at the moment. Within 12 hours, I, I, I had an agent and, uh, 
in 13 hours, I had uh, a casting fortune back at Pinewood Studios. And my girlfriend was just like, you just take the piss. You just, there's people out there who've been doing this for years who want an agent, who want to cast in a Pinewood. And you just kind of stumbled into this thing. And I was like, well, apparently so. Yeah, I went for, I went for the, uh, uh, I went, I went there. I went to Pinewood, did the audition for the day, did, uh, like a creature workshop and learned how to walk like Chewbacca. Believe me, there's an actually a walk and it's pigeon toed and knock kneed. That's how Chewbacca walks. Uh, they had like the original Star Wars on a film, uh, on a screen and they were just showing us, oh, like, and, and just analyzing his walk. And I've never spent so much time just analyzing a Wookiee's walk, but the yeah, pigeon toed and knock kneed, that's, that's how it works. And, uh, I actually got pretty far with that. It was, uh, it looked like it was going to be a thing. It was, everything started changing and then it was just like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to actually start funding my films by being a Wookiee like this is going to happen and I got down to the last two there was like me and another guy and I, I had I didn't even think about this I didn't even think about this and I was getting phone calls from from the agent saying oh yeah like JJ Abrahams and Kathleen Kennedy came in here because she was based in Pinewood and so they was getting she was phoning me going oh they came in here today and they're taking people's headshots and putting it on the wall and I'm looking at what they've arranged and you're on the wall next to this other guy and I think there's a good chance this is going to happen and, 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 and I'm just out living life normally like oh my god I'm just waiting for that phone call I'm going to be Chewbacca I'm going, it's going to happen it's going to happen I didn't get it and this is kind of funny in a way like talking about the CGI and, uh, and, and, and effects and things in general I didn't actually get it because I've got the wrong colour eyes. Chewbacca's got blue eyes and I've got brown eyes. And they wanted to go for authentic. And, Jesus and I just, Christ. I, yeah, I know. And I, and, I, and I had the agent explaining it to me, going, oh, it's to do with the eyes. And I was like, so you're trying to tell me a film about an alien planet filled with spaceships, filled with alien beings that don't exist. I've got a problem because my eyes are the wrong colour. It's just like, really? Welcome to Hollywood, David. Jesus. <laughs> but I was I was fine with it. I was really fine with it. I mean, it, it's not my goal or ambition to be an actor. And but it was just the experience. The experience of doing it was great. And I got to go to the sound stage and I got to use like uh, uh, like the crossbow gun. Uh, I'd love to see the footage. It's out there somewhere, somewhere in the fucking Disney vault. They've got me running around uh, as Chewbacca. Uh, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. But I got called back as well for um what's the new one? The, the Han Solo story. <laughs> that interesting thing. That is happening right now <laughs> you you told me about the plot of that one and uh-huh. i'm gonna go out on a limb and say after everything that's happened that's probably not the plot anymore <laughs> it's probably not it's really not yeah it's uh yeah and I, and I was surprised i was surprised what they they called me in for let's just say it gets a little bit star wars holiday special with uh what they called me in for i think that's probably as much as i can say on that but uh, yeah i don't, yeah. don't want to press you into a legal issue there well, <laughs> let's let's talk about your most recent accomplishment you don't like nostalgia exploitation like the Kung Furies or that new one Escape from North Korea and stuff like that. You recently made a music video that was nostalgic. You shot it as, this is the way I like to put it, it's an 80s throwback video. Not in a way of like the bombastic video or anything like that. You shot it as an early... I, I looked at it as like a Debbie Gibson or a Tiffany video would have been shot. You weren't going, look at this, look at this, 80s, 80s, 80s. You just shot a modern music video as a Debbie Gibson video in 1986 would have been shot. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's very accurate. It really was. I mean, like that, that came about because I'm a big fan of the synthwave scene and vaporwave scene. Uh, the singer 
uh, Roxy Drive, I'd actually put her in, what did I use? I used her voiceover for Seven Winters and she, I made a, a, a pilot, like we got wind one day of uh, 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 the BBC wanted to make, and this was back in 2013, a, a uh, uh, an 80s kids on, before Stranger Things, way before Stranger Things, it was like a friend of the friends just said like, the BBC want to make an 80s kids on bike TV show and, uh, and it was going to be like uh, I don't know what the equivalent is, you know, you know like, uh, uh, are you afraid of the dark? That kind of thing. Like kid, it's set at that level, like a kid orientated kind of show. Uh, whereas Stranger Things is more of an adult thing. Uh, they, they wanted that. And so I met Lucy. She told me about this and she said, oh, I know you've made cassette. Would you like to get involved and make this 80s kids on bike pilot? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, fine. So we made this thing for like no money. Handed in a 30 minute pilot. Nothing was picked up. I know someone else who did one. Nothing was picked up from it, but she knew from doing that what I could do on the cheap. Like, I could make something look 80s, and we made this thing look 80s. So she got in contact with me because they, the song was going to be put out. There was something was going to happen with a video. I'm not really sure what at the time. That changed. And I was given, it was like, you've got 24 hours to shoot something, but cut something and get it in for release. And I was like, fine, I'll do it. That's no problem. And again, I just went back, used all the same lenses and stuff, all the same equipment, all the old equipment got dusted off and taken out from, from the cassette days. And, uh, I just went back out and, uh, and, and shot this thing. And it was, it was, it's kind of like become second nature now. It was just like, right, okay, if we shoot the stuff on the pier of Magic Hour at the end, that's going to look really good. If we go here at this time, luckily I I live in in Brighton in the UK now and it's very much it's, it's a very artistic looking place like people like there's lots of graffiti everywhere there's lots of interesting things around and we were just managed to to use that stuff to our advantage to give you that look there's lots of like neon colors sprayed places okay let's, let's just frame up the background with the neon colors we, we shoot like Roxy wears a jean here. jacket in it I mean that's how much more mid 80s can you get oh I mean the only thing that would be more 80s is if she had fringes <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something funny about this, yeah. Like, I, I, I was like, yeah, we can make it look like an 80s video. It's no problem. Let's just go and shoot this thing. I know how to do this. So we did it. And part of the deal, and this was kind of hilarious. The, the part of the deal was um, one of the biggest, I don't want to start naming names, but one of the biggest synthwave channels, once, would, would they take it? They will definitely take it. And it was just like, they're going to get like, you know, like a 100,000 hits on this thing. You're going to get likes through the roof. And they do. They get their, they're like one that they, they get the most likes out of all the other synthwaves. And it was like, that's fantastic. So for me, it was just like, I've got an immediate audience for this. I do this stuff and this is, this is, my audience is going to see this. This is, this is perfect. I really want to do it. So, so we did the thing and just like, you don't know about this, Josh. Did I, I, your reaction to this is, I know you can be, get very heated about things. Let's just say that. it's going to be interesting to hear what you say. But that video was handed in and they turned around and said, no, 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 we don't think that this video is very 80s. It's not 80s enough. Were they looking for like a Bonnie McKee? Now, I like <laughs> Bonnie McKee. I like yeah. the Bombastic video and actually all the videos from her album are very 80s throwbacks, but they're a little bit more of that, even though her song is called Bombastic, a Bombastic 80s video. Yours was more, the Roxy Driver video is much more quiet 80s. Like I said, it, 80s it, it, yeah, video, isn't it, it? yeah. If you didn't know that this was made in 2017, 
Okay, the, the the digital you know photography gives it away a little bit, but if you didn't know this was made in 2017, there's a good chance you'd look at this video and think it's 19 vintage 1987 or 1988. I don't think that's unrealistic to say. No, no, it's not unrealistic to say. It's um, it's it's just kind of like in my head, I have an idea of what a low budget film should look like there's actually a documentary up up on my uh youtube channel and it's just about it's it's pretty cool it's about female filmmakers in the early 80s and you had people like suzanne siderman and penelope spherus who directed wayne's world just talking about working on a low budget around new york and la and you see the films that they shot and they're very stylish looking low budget films uh like i mean have you seen suburbia the the roger corman film the punk film have not seen in that? 25 years but yes i have seen the, yeah 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 so the, there's the, they talk about suburbia and they talk about uh, a film called smithereens that was shot in in new york and you look at these things and they're just making the most out of nothing and and, and and the look of them is it's just so rich. There's just so much stuff there. In my head, they look like a, a, a low budget film. That's what a low budget film should look like. You take stock in the things you have. And uh, in the eighties in New York uh, and LA, there was sort of so much color and so much going on. And for me, I just try and find those places here now. There are places like that, you know, that still kind of have that look. Then use them for the uh, to make stuff. And the whole point of uh, I think they wanted with the music video. I think they did want that. I think they did want it to look like a bit of a CGI fest. I think they wanted the the, the kind of like color correct. Directed, uh, tones to it rather than the real color. You don't, you don't have enough that... purple neon in it. Oh, let's talk about that purple neon. Yeah, they love that purple neon. Yeah, and and it was it was it was unbelievable because another thing at the time, and and this is where it like, kind of gets political and it kind of gets a bit silly because the the guy who runs the channel actually he's never he's taken other music videos from people but he actually made his own 80s music video which relied heavily on color correction and everything and i think it could be bad timing that he put this thing out and the funny thing was he put this thing out he got lots of backlash from people saying well this doesn't look 80s this is supposed to be an 80s channel we were asking him to take our one which looked very 80s and i think to avoid that kind of criticism he just didn't take it and there was one of the people like involved with the actual production of the music was just like yeah i I think this is just bad timing um you know like he he can't let something that he's kind of put effort into look bad to this thing that's just been shot in 24 hours like it's just it's just not gonna go up and it's like okay thanks you overshadowed him you outshined him well but at the end of the day it didn't go on there and it and it, i think it deserved more of an audience than it did that thing it was it was it was a good song. It was a good song. I liked it, and uh, the, the, uh, the, and the video turned out really well. I think it turned out well. And that amount of time, to have that time. I mean, we talk about it now, and it's all just like, oh, yeah, when I made the video. But it was stressful because I just had a countdown clock going, and it was like, yeah, this needs to be done by then. And it's like, okay, yeah, just, just 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes. Let's end out tonight then talking about – now, you and I have talked off mic quite a bit about – why we don't like nostalgia exploitation. I, I know you were, you were incensed when you saw the trailer for Escape from North Korea. <laughs> you were like, what is this shit? <laughs> and, and that's actually more bombastic, I think, than Kung Fury was. Why do you hate nostalgia exploitation so much? Because your films 
cassette is a period piece. Seven Winters Alone is is a nostalgic throwback to, like you said, Richard Stanley and James Cameron. The Roxy Drivers. You make throwback stuff. Why does your stuff tend to be more authentic than this over-the-top parody kind of stuff? I think what it is is just uh, like the point of view that I, I, I go to things with. And, I mean, it, it, I like Joe Danto. I like Joe Danto a lot. But and he makes – I mean, look, look at his stuff. Look at the kind of things he makes. He very much makes things with, with a love of, like, the 50s, of the old monster movies, of the old Universal movies. But he never parodies them. He doesn't spoof them. He doesn't make light of them like there's something beneath him. You can tell there's a real love for it. And that's the kind of way I approach these things. The whole idea, it's kind of just absolutely uh, stupid. To, I'm going to make a bad movie. And that's what they are. That's what the nostalgia exploitation things have become. Just like an asylum. It's like a subgenre of the asylum stuff. I'm, I'm going to make a bad movie. I'm going to make a bad 80s movie. And if you could set out to make something bad, then probably 75% of the criticism that's going to be thrown at you has been taken away. Because you can't turn around and say, oh, well, this is, this isn't, you know, this isn't like an 80s thing. Oh no, this is a bad 80s movie. This is bad. And you've just couched yourself from any kind of criticism. Except see, okay, I disagree with you on one aspect there. I think intentionally making something bad as part of a satire can work, such as like Ted Newsom's The Naked Monster mm. or, or the current TV series Blood Drive and what you can do that right, where there is an underlying social satire. You're not, as you pointed out, like with Joe Dante, you're not making fun of these things, mm. but you watch Ted Newsom's Naked Monster and it is full of intentionally bad effects, bad acting and whatnot, because he is literally emulating all of the movies he grew up with that he loved, which yeah. had bad effects and bad acting. And you can see, I mean, the movie is freaking hilarious, so he is, in a way, making fun of them. But there's a difference between, like, Kung Fury, which is a parody, and Naked Monster, which is absolute satire. Of course. Yeah, exactly. I agree. It's, it's just that having that love for something. If you love for something, you're not going to make fun of it. You, you, you can say, you can, you can do this like what we're talking about now. And it, it's not a spoof. It's more like a loving kind of tribute to this stuff. It's done with a passion like, Oh, I love this. Therefore I'm going to do this kind of thing. But I think the point of view that comes across and it does come across on, on, on screen. It's this very kind of, uh, condescending. Well, this is terrible. So I'm going to make one of these terrible things. Look at this terrible thing. And that, it really does come across. It comes across. And it's just not sincere. And if you, you're making something, uh, you know, without any kind of sincerity to it, then it's, it's just kind of flat and dull. And that's the, the, why I kind of feel about this. And, and, and I don't, I just don't understand why you do that. I mean, look at, look, look at the film within a film in Matinee. Look at Men. Uses all those things. It looks terrible. Uh, you know, and it's, it's well made. You can almost feel Joe Dante's love for that material. And if you've ever exactly. seen the behind the scenes, John Goodman and those actors, they were reveling. They were having so much fun making the Mant segments. Yeah, but that's, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's, that, that's the point. Like there was a love for it. There was, uh, uh, some sort of affection for that thing. But I think a lot of people see these 80s things, roll their eyes and say, Oh my God, they're so cheesy. I could just make something as cheesy as that. And they just throw this thing out there. I mean, I mean, look, with the, with, like you're saying about the, the, the escape from North Korea thing. 
the whole 80s thing about it just looks like a, a skin thrown on the top. It's just like an avatar. They got the purple neon out. They didn't even get the purple I, I, neon out. They got the CGI purple neon out and just threw it over the top. And, I, I think know. a good example, I think a good example would be Machete versus Machete Kills. Yeah. Machete was a, was an actual grindhouse movie. Machete mm. Kills is exploitation movie, the parody. Yeah, exactly. The 80s thing's massive right now. Everything's, it's, it's all kind of turning around to that and looking back at the past. And I think we've always done that. I mean, you look at, look at the eighties in general. I mean, I mean, you were there, Josh, you were there. Like, how much did we look back at the fifties? You turn on the TV and there'd be fifties monster movies. And, and, and the nineties was the seventies and now it's the eighties. Exactly. Yeah. That's always been a thing. Just an askewed look back at the eighties. I don't even think back in the, in, in the eighties when we looked at the fifties, it was just like, this is so terrible. There was an element of that maybe. But not so much in the fact that you, you, you're kind of just creating a past for yourself. You're making something substandard and just saying, this is bad. Look at this bad thing. Give me money to make this bad thing. And then you're making something bad with no kind of affection or no love or no, probably no interest in it really. Other than the fact that Kung Fury made money and people think I can do that. And it kind of goes back around again to this thing, like how film kind of creates itself and you, you, you just look at what's around you. Oh, I can do that. And it's just like, oh yeah. And it's just all kind of runs at this level. There's, it doesn't go beyond that. There's no depth to anything that's happening. It's just all very shallow veneer. Let's just do the CGI color correction. Let's just do this because everyone else is doing it. Now, to be fair, you and I are going to be doing that, hopefully, at this point next year, if I ever get off my ass and actually get the script written. If you get off your we're, ass and write that script, we will. Yeah. <laughs> we will do it. Yeah. We're, we're making a 1201 Beyond movie, and I am doing it as a throwback, but I have made it very clear to you, I do not want this to be a parody or a satire. My script, without giving away too much, it's set in the future of 1996, but it's 1996 as envisioned by 1981. I think that gives it both a, a kind of a fun vibe, and I've told you exactly how I want it to look. The you know I want it to look like it's a combination of Joe Dante from The Howling with lighting and Dean Cundey when it comes to that wet kind of sheen all of his movies had. You know? Yeah, exactly. No, I get that, and uh, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to doing that. It's um, and it's... The, the 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 script is full of in jokes. It's fu it's full of nerd references. I remember there was a couple that I explained to you that I actually had to explain the reference. They were so <laughs> deep down the nerd rabbit hole. Yeah, that's true. That you really did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't know that. It's uh, you're you're a bigger '80s nerd than I am, Josh. There you go. You've got that one over me, a hundred percent. In in the in the the script I'm writing, the main character Gretna, who is a punk rock chick with a neon mohawk, she is bootlegging Hotel Satan. Hotel Satan is the movie they were making in 1986, 1988's The Deadpool. And that's a movie she's bootlegging when all of, when the story kicks in. I don't even know if people like you and me would get that casually. <laughs> Probably not, no, and I, not. And we're even going to use the right, the same font and everything. <laughs> not off the cuff. I don't think I would have off the cuff. But, but then when I explained it to you, you were like, okay, now I get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I knew, yeah, Jim Carrey and Guns N' Roses. How can you ever forget that? If I ever get off my ass and do this, you're going to, to direct this, and I'm hoping that it won't come across like an escape from North Korea, and that it will come across like a Seven Winters Alone. But we'll see how badly I can screw this up. 
I think we'll be fine. I think we'll be fine. It's, um, there's, well, there's some interesting things happening between now and that as well. How much can you talk about Night Waves? And I, I, I know this isn't the official title right now, but Wolf Moon, which has a weird 1201 connection. I don't know if we, I would love if you can talk about that, but I don't know if you can. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can mention some stuff about that. We can mention some stuff about that. It's, um, everything's kind of, uh, yeah, gone, gone in the right direction recently because like, like you were saying about seven winters, I made that thing. The big problem with this stuff is having no budget and having no budget. It just really just, uh, sets back your imagination on things like, Oh yeah, I want this. I can't have that. When I did seven winters, that whole idea of like, uh, it kind of turned into like a dystopian haunted house film. That was the idea. And I was, I, I love that idea and I wanted to turn it into something. And so I took the time to, to take the idea and just flesh it out as a novel. And I wrote, uh, uh, the novel of Seven Winters Alone, dystopian eighties haunted house story. And I had this thing and people kind of knew uh, I was writing stuff, like writing more and more, uh, wrote a few novels now, which I need to, put out there it kind of come around that a producer over in the uk named uh, jonathan softcott has hereford films he puts lots of stuff out like gangster films and so on and so forth he wanted to put together uh, a, a horror film and i had actually when i went to i went to the Cannes film festival when i went to the can to, to sell cassette i had uh, i put some pitch books together and one of them was for uh, a film called night waves and i had the screenplay for it and he was trying to put, and Jonathan Softcott was trying to get some horror stuff out there. And someone mentioned this to me and I got in contact with a guy and said, Oh, would you like to read this? Okay, fine. You know, uh, I, I, I didn't really expect anything back from it. And, uh, then I get a phone call. Let's go and have a meeting. I want to talk to you about this. I like this concept, uh, uh this film, Night Waves, uh, which is about, uh, sea sirens coming up from the sea. And it's a bit, it's part blood beach, part invasion of the body snatchers. That's how I saw it in my mind. And uh, I went to meet the guy, and uh, he was like, I love this. I love this screenplay. Um, I want to produce this. It was kind of like, it was weird. It was like someone saying all the things you wanted them to say. And you're just sitting there like, okay, right, yeah, this is this is, this is is what it's supposed to be. I'm not used to this, but okay, let's carry on. I want to buy the screenplay to Nightwaves. I think there's a lot of potential there. L- let's do this thing. I want it to be like, uh, we try and get this done and released in 2018. I was like, yep, fine. And we just started talking about his slate of films and the things that he's thinking about doing. And uh, he mentioned, he turned around and mentioned uh, a concept that he wanted to put in production. And uh, he said, I want to do a movie about a werewolf in space. And I just sat there and just, and, and laughed straight away. And I was just like, I get it. I get this thing. And then, and like, you're talking about the nostalgia exploitation stuff and uh, and all that. And he, he said, I don't want it to be a... Uh, a spoof it can't be silly and uh said no it can't be silly it can't be silly but the, the way i see it in my head is like a a, a john sales script like a, a piranha or an alligator but with with a sense of humor uh like a joe dante film and uh and he got yep exactly that like uh do you want to do me a 10 page uh, uh do, do me a one page where, where you think it's going to go so i went away and uh, instead of doing the one but i just totally got into it i totally got into it i was like i can understand this thing and uh you know like we've said josh like we've said about this in space there's always a full moon 
there you go. That's, that, there's Werewolf in Space. There's I, I believe, to be fair, I gave you, I gave you the line which, which I love in the script. In space, it's always a full moon. <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. We spoke about this. It came up and it's like that, that's exactly what this movie is. But then you say it like that and there's the sense of humor in the movie. There, there's the, 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 that's what this thing is. And uh, so instead of doing the one page, I walked away and, uh, and I got over the course of the week, I just did the whole thing. I did the whole, the, it's, uh, I think it rolls in at like 92 pages now. And uh, I put this thing together and, uh, I went back to him and I was just like, well, like, you know, uh, he didn't owe me anything for this. It was just like, oh yeah, give it a go. I went back. He loved it. And he said, oh, this is right. You're going to be doing two movies for me now then. You're going to be doing Night Waves, the siren film, and you're going to be doing Werewolf in Space. And I think that it's, it's looking that they're going to be completed next year. Which and, is interesting. And, and, and there's a 1201 there's, connection in there. Yeah, yeah the, the, there's, there's there a weird, there's a weird 1201 connection. And I've read the script. I'm not going to give anything away, but <laughs> Hadley is badass in this, although she <laughs> is a female in the movie. <laughs> well, you're trying to tell me that's uh, not always been a dream of yours in some uh, strange way, Josh. I neither confirm nor deny. Exactly. I didn't think you would. But th- there, um, th- there's also a Cecil character, a Peter character, and so forth. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. And um I'll I'll uh I'll be honest, I'll be honest, the whole like with radio drum is it's just so nice. When you're doing this stuff, when you're making movies, when you you're trying to get somewhere, like I say, I'm just like a a normal guy, I've, I've got a job and uh, I, I kind of sacrifice free time, well any time, let's be serious, to try and make these things. It's, it's making films and watching films and loving films is a very different thing. It really is. And it's just so nice to listen to a radio drum. And just listen to people talk about films and films that you, you'd say things that I understand. You talk about films in a way that I understand them. And it's kind of kept, you know, when you're in the depths of dealing with the producers and, you know, various drafts of screenplays and this and that, it's just so nice to listen to a radio drum and listen to people talk about things they love. And it just, it gives you that feeling yourself like, oh, I know why I'm doing this. I love this thing. It, it, it totally keeps me motivated just hearing people bitch about movies. It really does. It really does. It's, it's a nice thing. So it's just my kind of tribute to that in the screenplay. And, and, and the name, it, and, it, and it's a funny thing when you think about it. How do you make name? How do you make, what do you call a werewolf in space film? Because everything you say, like, like at the moment that, you know, there's one title, which is, uh, uh, Wolf Moon. But what does that say? That could be a generic. That could be werewolf on earth. That doesn't say werewolf in space. So, um, like I say, my idea for the screenplay was Blood Beach and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And when I spoke to Jonathan Sofcar, he he turned around to me and, and he saw it a different way. He was like, yeah, this is kind of like Lost Boys crossed with Chud. And I was like, I, I can run with that. And uh, one of the alternative titles at the minute is um, is uh, the, the acronym um, uh, W-O-L-F, which stands for Weaponized Off-World Lycanthrope Fugitive. <laughs> To run along the Chud kind of route. So yeah, at, at the moment, look, we don't know what this thing's going to be called. We really don't. But yeah, that that, that could possibly be one of them. Weaponized off-world lycanthrope fugitive. It, it's going to be an interesting time with uh, things being made before I, I, I lead up to uh, working with you on the 1201 movie. Definitely. And I've got to get off my ass and actually write the damn thing. So on that note, we've talked about your films and your videos and all that. Where can people see them and where can people contact you? Because I have a feeling you're getting a bunch of Facebook friend requests. After well, I hope so. I hope so. That'd be very nice. I am, you can find me at metropolemovies.com and David Irons on Facebook. 
And you can find me, of course, at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, go check out his stuff. Don't fall for the nostalgia exploitation and try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.